Welcome to the Shark Pod, the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in Ireland and beyond. And now, live from Greystone Studios, here are your hosts, Luke Curry and Mark Baker. What is up, Shark Nation? Welcome to another podcast here, uh, live from Greystone Studios. My brother-in-law, as usual, out there in, in Glenagiri. How are you doing, Mark Baker? Good, Luke. How are you? Good, good, good. Our our uh, our guest today on the podcast is John McGrain. Uh, how are you doing, John? Pretty good, thanks. Good, good, good. So I was I was trying to do uh, before we do these uh, <laughs> before we do these podcasts. I usually do a bit of background. I go on the LinkedIn. I try to maybe sum up a career. In a, in a few sentences um i've got a whole list of uh of career items here um for you but i guess uh the reason why we're having a chat today uh, you're the co-founder and uh, director general of the british and irish uh, chamber of commerce and also the founder of uh, kmed uh you've also uh, worked in ulster bank for 40 years uh, so there's a wealth of uh, of experience there that we could dig into today uh, but hopefully a lot of the people out there will be listening uh will get something out of this uh chat especially around the brexit stuff because it's so topical um so maybe we'll start start with the what you're doing right now um with the uh with the british and irish chamber of commerce how did that come about um how, how long has that been going on and what's the what's the the main driver of that business or that kind of uh, setup sure thing luke and thanks for the opportunity to chat with you guys today it's um it's a really interesting time to be talking about business anyway um, business in a britain and ireland context business in a COVID context and just business um and how I got to be involved uh, was I was one of the co-founders of the British Irish Chamber of Commerce. So uh, we're just coming up to our 10th anniversary. A lot of people think we've been around for 800 years of oppression and all that kind of stuff. But actually, no. Um, while we've had a, an American chamber, we've had European chambers, we've had Dublin chamber where I was on the board as vice president for a number of years. Uh, we've had lots of those things. But actually, uh, while some of those go back, I mean, Dublin chamber goes back 280 years. Uh, we're only 10 years in business as the British Irish Chamber, mostly because people kind of took for granted that uh, we're so close, we're so interwoven in so many ways, including by trade, but also by lots of other things, uh, culture, language, uh, legislation, community, family, lots and lots of things. Uh, we actually didn't have a British Irish Chamber of Commerce uh, ever up until 10 years ago when we made one. And it coincided with the visit to Ireland, historical visit at the time in 2011 of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, reciprocated within a year afterwards by the historical visit of President Michael D. Higgins to Britain. And in the aura of all of that, uh, a bunch of us in business, I was in banking at the time, uh, but I'm okay now, um, decided to come together and form a Chamber of Commerce with the aim really of not nothing to do with politics, but to recognise the fact that uh, it was kind of odd that we didn't have an organization that could speak for and represent or promote the cause of businesses who do business between and from the two islands of Ireland and Great Britain. So we built it um, and it uh, it did okay for a couple of years, but frankly, it didn't thrive. We had some great early support from some significant firms, but to become a growing organization, we needed to build a, a proper business model in behind that. So I was retiring two years later from my career in Ulster Bank and um, the board asked me to have a look at reviving the chamber to take it you know, strongly into the next phase after that initial aura of the start had burned off. And um, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. I'll, uh, I'll go one step further. I'll run it for you on my own resources. 
and uh, you pay me a fee every year to, to grow it. So I get an incentive to do the right thing for our members and, and make it the best thriving business organization they could be in. Uh, the chamber itself through its board gets to do well uh, and we get to make good, good things happen together for everybody involved. And that's been the story so far. Brilliant. And just for those people out there that maybe haven't uh, come across Chamber of Commerces before, would you describe that as a, uh, a business support group or networking group how would you describe that type of business? So we do two things. It's it's a really good question because lots and lots of people think uh, Chambers of Commerce are sort of footy-duddy old places and a bit sort of dusty and all that kind of stuff or a bit mysterious. So we're, we're very simple and straightforward. We do two things. We connect people together. So business A wants to meet business B and we make that happen. Or we know of a business B that business B and C should get to meet. So we introduce them and we know enough about them and learn enough and, and are interested enough in their, their affairs and, and their interests uh, commercially to say, we saw somebody that we think would be good for you to know. So we make that happen. We do that across a bunch of different industrial sectors. So we're not all about Brexit or British-Irish relations you know, as a political cause, but we, um, we, we take that on a sectoral basis. We're founded on the energy and climate sector, now sustainability. Uh, but we also have about a dozen other sectors uh, ranging from the food and agribusiness sector, financial professional services, uh, infrastructure, uh, life sciences, technology. Uh, we're the only business organization which on day one formed a cultural wing, which we call CAST, which is culture, arts, sports and tourism, mostly because we recognize as people in business that actually culture is fundamental to people's uh, human existence and to the quality of life for our people. Uh, but culture essentially gets paid for uh, substantially by if it isn't the taxpayer, all of us, uh, the commercial bit is tourism, so visit the visitor economy. And equally, um, tourism depends greatly on the vibrancy of the cultural sector. So we built that, and we have a broad enterprise group and a couple of other sectors as well. So we do connecting across business sectors, uh, and we the second big component of what we do is public policy advocacy. So across all of those sectors, they have issues, most of them nothing to do with Brexit. So energy, lots and lots of EU competency is devolved to the island of Britain and the island of Ireland to work stuff out themselves. The water doesn't know where the uh, where the border is. The electrons don't know where the border is. The wind doesn't know where the border is. So a lot of regulation between these islands is handled locally. And we do a lot of work in public policy with both governments, Britain and Ireland, to create the smoothest possible conditions for getting good business done. Obviously for power companies and utilities and the like of that and generators and stuff, but mostly for the benefit of consumers as a result of taking out some of the friction costs that would arise if we didn't clean up some of the legislation. We do that, that across all of our sectors like food, life sciences, technology and such like. So we do public policy work. That includes break, Brexit, obviously, these days. And we do that networking piece better than anybody else. Okay, so that's uh, for all those people out there that wanted an overview. That was uh, as as uh, as uh, as in depth as as you could get, which is great. And so, with, with the the Bre- I know you mentioned that the Brexit is not all all that you talk about. It's probably a lot of the questions you guys are getting right now, though, just because the time that's in it, um, and the the kind of the deadlines that are coming up. Um, what do you think that this is like the outcome of this? Do you think that this has been uh, a disaster? Do you see that Irish businesses thriving after this, or is there going to be a big is it going to be a choppy are people not really uh appreciating uh what the outcomes could be, lead to for a smb sector here well the the answer is is classically mixed to be honest with you look i mean the the, the deal around brexit is 
essentially about um, parts of the economy that are greatly exposed to difference in regulation. So food, for instance, is particularly exposed in that area, and we can talk about that, uh, versus other parts of economic life, which are so globalized that uh, any local differences are unlikely to amount to much. I mean, uh, people have heard about the World Trade Organization, the WTO. So the most exposed sector to um, a situation where Britain would be working to what's called WTO uh, regulation as opposed to EU regulation, the effect of that would be to increase what we call tariffs and duties and quotas around uh, the volume and, and taxes on the trade of foodstuffs between Ireland and Britain. That's the most extreme. And so, I mean, just to put a context around that, it's not some theoretical thing, it's very straightforward. Uh, today, we sell the finest quality Irish beef to Britain, not just in you know big slabs of sides of cattle, but also in ready meals that are made in Monaghan and transported overnight through uh, the Larnestrand Rail Route, and they appear uh, as if by magic on a Marks and Spencer shelf in the middle of Manchester at exactly seven minutes past eight tomorrow morning. That's a brilliantly sophisticated trade that gives you know British homes access to great Irish food, the highest quality at very good prices. Um, exporting beef in that context today goes into Britain without any taxes payable on the Britain side. So there are no import tariffs for Irish beef into Britain today. Um, an environment in which tariffs do apply would see, under the World Trade Organization, beef carrying a tax of up to 72%. So that's nearly twice the price wow. of the raw material. So you can, as you can imagine, a beef uh, stew made in Monaghan appearing in Marks and Spencers after that uh, becomes significantly poorer value for the British consumer. Um, ditto in, in other aspects of agriculture. So dairy products have a duty applicable to them of up to 52%. Wow. And Britain is Ireland's biggest customer for cheddar cheese. Uh, almost half of all the cheddar cheese made or consumed in Britain is, is Irish made. So the loss of that market for those types of foodstuffs has a huge impact, not just for the processors, but right back to the farm gate and the farm homesteads right across the highways and byways of Ireland. It's not just a farming thing, because farmers spend locally, they buy a local car, they get the car insured in a local insurance broker, the insurance broker sports, you know, sponsors the local hurling team. So everything about that uh, trade has impact right down to the local football clubs and sports clubs and cultural uh, establishments and religious establishments and everything else in the homesteads right across the highways and byways of Ireland. So if that's damaged, then life in Ireland is damaged. And it's just the same with other trades, obviously on the Britain side as well. They're, they are worse off when that arises. But further back, there are other aspects of trade which have very little uh, duty applied to them. So literally nuts and bolts. You know, metal components don't really have much duty applied to them because the WTO isn't much interested in that. But uh, even for those that have no duties applied to them, the import and export documentation in a not free trade agreement that that deletes those things, and that's that's not what we have in front of us right now. It means that the trade in fairly basic products, even without taxes, has a lot more documentation, mm. what's called import declarations and export licenses and health and safety certificates. All that stuff that we don't have to do as EU members together becomes, frankly, a pain in the ass and an expensive waste of time and resources. And some jobs would be lost because the margins in those businesses would be worse off because of those extra costs. So... Is Brexit a good thing? Not really. Not really. Not really. And what about 
What about um, something like a professional services uh, business? So it's like, for instance, uh, Mark Baker's uh, business for the recruiting. Say if he um, is doing work for a client in Manchester, um, sure does, that, does that affect uh, those types of businesses in Ireland as much? Yeah, it's a really important question because here's the thing. While we've been talking for four and a half years since the UK referendum to leave uh, the EU in 2016 about boxes and beef and stuff and WTO and duties, uh, all of them important. Uh, we haven't really talked at all as a community about services. And the reality is um, there is no good that you buy anymore without a service wrapped around it. It could be the, the service of marketing. So, so you know, take a pig farm. You can't move a pig farm, but uh, you, you can move some of the services around it. So the service of marketing the products, the service of packaging and distribution, the services of certification and health and safety around that. So services... In historically under the EU for as long as we've been in it over 40 years have never really been harmonized across the EU. What the EU has tended to do is devolve responsibility for services to local professional organizations like the Institute of Chartered Accountants to govern how accountancy should be done across, in our case, Britain and Ireland. I mean, just to take an example, as matters stand without any further improvements in this space from start of 2021, so 1st of January, um, a British accountant will uh, be able to sign Irish audited accounts, but an Irish accountant will not be able to sign British audited accounts. Um, and in that situation, you have a, a mismatched market, you have a waste of resource, you have um, cost uh, distortions for those reasons. And it's not just in accounting, it's across many professions, uh, including in safety and, and healthcare. It's, uh, it's in engineering, it's in actuaries, it's in uh, pension services, it's in architecture, it's in lots and lots of the things that we take for granted all around us every day. And the EU has not largely done much to harmonize the provision of services. And so that's a significant to-do list still to be on the list of people like us and many others in policy formation for the next number of years. Wow. So huge impact there to come kind of a tip of the iceberg there. We don't really know how that's going to pan out. I think and that, that's, that's terrible for making business decisions as well. If, if Mark doesn't know how much this is going to cost him, like his business is thriving now. He's, you know, wants to expand. Uh, obviously the UK is a huge market for, for companies like Mark's. Um, but who can make a decision if they don't really know what the where it's going to be six months from now? Like, yeah. So that's the kind of situation the businesses have been thrust into. Um, thrust is probably a bit too much because the reality is we've had four and a half years to prepare. But I guess the reality also is that lots and lots of businesses have said, look, we're too small to prepare for every scenario. Come back to us when you know what the scenario is and we'll adapt quickly. That doesn't work for everybody. It does work for some. And we're really busy right now. Uh, with a strategy that we propose for lots and lots of businesses that's working really well. So if you are selling whether goods or definitely services into the UK, one very easy strategy is to say, we'll open a UK office and we'll, we'll populate it on the ground there and we'll stay inside. We won't close anything here, obviously, in Ireland, but we will open additionally inside the UK. So we're not at risk of being cut off in that way from trading as openly as ever inside the UK. And that's easier to do with services than it is with goods. Um, and by the way, we do the exact same. We've lots and lots of UK businesses calling us every day now, including on our new command platform, which we come to, 
uh, talking about getting themselves uh, a base inside the EU by opening a base inside Ireland. We're doing that with both manufacturing companies and service businesses, connecting them with like-minded businesses here who can maybe uh, do a joint venture with them, as Mark could do with a like-minded firm in the UK, um, to have the resources and the route to market and the market insight. And basically, instead of thinking about losing trade, talk, talk about growing trade with the nearest market to us, the market most like us, and a market that still has 65 million people who've got to eat, who've got to clothe themselves, who've got to go to educational establishments, got to take a holiday, uh, got to do all the normal things of life. And that the 65 million people market of the UK can access the 450 million market of the EU when all of this is done and dusted simply by establishing a presence on the other island as we see it. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point as well, because even when you mentioned that those guys are calling you or you're, you're having these conversations. I, I never really think of the, the perspective of uh, the British in that, in that case. It's very, uh, the Irish media, um, I get rightly so perhaps, but are very focused on how this is going to affect us. We don't really look at it from a different point of view. And I think one of the questions that I had for you there is that, like, what are, what are the opportunities out of this? When there's change, there's going to be someone who capitalizes on this. Um, is it uh, those types of events? Uh, joint ventures um should mark be reaching out to those companies saying hey you know we're doing business here we've got the connections we've got the contracts with these you know uh you know these big financial companies here that you might have worked with in uh london or manchester in the past um is that where is that where the if, if there is a silver lining is there is that the main path towards that do you think Big time, big time, guys. I mean, the reality is, as I said, you can't move a pig farm, but you can move the services. Um, food is a special case. There's no doubt about that. And so a deal that avoids the paying of duties and tariffs and quotas on animal products is a really important deal. But it still leaves inconvenience at the point of importation and export in terms of declarations and all that stuff. So while that still arises with native produce like food, which, which you know, Ireland exports four-fifths of everything that we make in food, so we need those external markets. But definitely in other trades where it's easier again, there's a huge opportunity. And, you know, business, we, we make the point that business people don't have any politics. If they do, we don't want to know about them. We say we're just about the business of getting more business done. We say that the best, I mean, the only political cause we have is peace and prosperity. And the best way to peace and prosperity is to give people a job. Yeah. So whether that's in the Outer Hebrides or in Cornwall or on the Ring of Kerry or up in Newton Arts, it doesn't matter. As long as business people are incentivized and enabled to follow opportunity, they will do that. It's the natural flow and it's a very good thing. And so, you know, it's never too late to do the smart thing as far as this goes. And whatever your business is, our operation is geared to find you somebody of like mind and say, let's put you together and you guys go off and come up with a solution from working together that you wouldn't have otherwise. And both of your both of you and your stakeholders, your employees and your communities are better off. Absolutely. And you touched on an interesting point that me and Mark have talked about before. Sometimes when we might be watching the news together or something and um, the government are you know, saying that this is gonna cr the, some policy is going to create X number of jobs. We always say like it's actually the, the entrepreneur or the investor that's, that's right. actually going to be creating those jobs. And that's exactly right. sometimes I think as well, like I walk around um, whatever the town that I live in here or I see some boarded up restaurants that aren't going to make it this time. And that is sad, but I know that there's another wave of entrepreneurs coming, uh, wait, waiting to invest their savings and getting this going again. And that's that's going to be, it, it's something that I don't think 
uh, in the short term anyway, we're going to be uh, kind of lacking. And I think that we've got a good spirit there and it's getting better. Well, I mean, the, the, the great outcome would be to stimulate even more. So you, you touched on it in your intro to this piece, Luke. I mean, entrepreneurs love change because change creates opportunity. Of course, there's short-term stuff that you've got to contend with, but if you're up for that, I mean, what do you get out of bed for? It's to confront unmet need, and there's definitely unmet need when you know somebody changes the rules because people need to still exist net of the new rules. So smart operators read the rules quickly, figure out, okay, what's, what's the right economics to, to navigate this new market, and they go about it. What they also need is the opportunity created by good connections. Because if you are in Greystones and you don't know somebody in, you know, Sheffield, um, we probably do. So uh, we can use our resources to connect you to the rest of the equation that you know would make great sense if you could find the right partner. And I'd say it's become even more important now with with COVID-19 and the restrictions of movement. How is it, have you found it uh, adapting much or evolving much networking nowadays? Sure thing, Mark. So, I mean, the networking space, um, sometimes people think it's a bit of a dark art, but it's actually very straightforward. It's what you do with your mates. You met Billy and you think that what he's talking about could be interesting to Betty. So you connect them up. They didn't know each other until you introduced them and then they go prosper. That's all we do. And in in a pre-COVID environment, um, a lot of that was inherently built on literally getting people into the one room. So in my offices here, uh, we, we use a considerable amount of the space in these offices in pre-COVID times to literally bring people together, 50, 60, 70 people, um, bottle of Coke and an interesting speaker, and then go prosper, bring your cards, get to meet lots of people. Um, it's, a, it's a good process and it's hugely pleasurable, but actually it's quite inefficient because you know, you got to take a couple of hours to kind of get to the place, get back. Uh, you got to load up on those cards and you can only meet so many people over the course of you know an hour and a half or whatever it is it is. COVID has actually helped us all to realize that there's a much wider world out there and, and whereas we couldn't get to it before, um, uh, between time and money and everything else, uh, now we're forced to connect with it online, just like this. And uh, while it has its frustrations from time to time, uh, it's extraordinarily efficient. And, and again, smart business people know that. And so they're using it really well. And they're saying, put us together online. That's just as good. So we're doing a lot of Zoom-based conference calls and and, and uh, gatherings and, and networking events. Um, like lots of people figuring out how to use the latest, you know, uh, features in, in Zoom, like uh, breakout rooms and all that good stuff. And that's working really, really well. And now we can do that at scale because SMEs are kind of hard to reach. They're physically you know, dispersed around the highways and byways, which is wonderful. So everybody gets to have the lifestyle they want. But actually, that means that they don't get to physically meet up so much. And even on Zoom, it's not quite as straightforward. So that's why we launched our latest initiative, which is called Command, K-M-E-N-D, as in recommend, not in command. And we're working on that at the minute to get people to, uh, to be fluent in it. But Command does what it says on the tin. It says, I know Luke. Turns out he does a pretty good job. Uh, he says to me, listen, if you like the service, would you mind recommending me to your mates? I mean, business people do that. Yeah. Um, that was kind of difficult before. You come back from a gathering, you take two or three business cards and you ping a three-line email at, at its most efficient to your mates and say, I met Mark and I met Luke this morning. They're two good guys. My other friends, you should meet these guys. They're doing good stuff. Command does that all online, all automated. It basically says we work with people who are in our networks, which are obviously very trusted networks because we manage them in a trustworthy way. And we introduce them online 
through an artificial intelligence engine built by UCD Nova, a people called Recommender X, state-of-the-art cutting-edge artificial intelligence, which basically says the machine does the work while you're asleep. It figures out what's brilliant about you and who, therefore, the machine should recommend you to be with to open up new opportunities of like mind, not random, not just you know matching words, but understanding the nature of the kind of transactions that you want to do with some other people. And we're getting huge interest now in that platform, uh, not least because of Brexit, for the reasons I said, where people are saying, tell us about this strategy and can you find us some, some equal and opposite partners that we can go forward with together. The machine is now doing that on an automated basis and it's going really well. Perfect. And the, the K-Med, uh, like recommend. Command. 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 I was only having you on there. Yeah, of course. I commend. Um, so the, the, this platform, is it uh, is it live now? Is it, is it in beta? Is it nope. a, like a function? Yeah, right it's got the really complicated name of www.command.com. Okay. So if you're... That's the only qualification you need to to uh, to actually be good enough to to go into networking is 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 pronounced command. And if you do, the machine does the work. Uh, I don't want to trivialize it. It's important that we have got a platform that can help people during COVID to be not trapped in isolation, but say, actually, you know what? I'm liberated by this environment using the technology, so that now I can do my marketing. I mean, a very good client of mine in our traditional network said, "How do we business develop now?" And that's a, that's a real thing because, like, first of all, people in a lot of cases struggle to business develop anyway. Yeah. And then the smart ones who have mastered the art of in-person networking, that's good. They're saying, well, how do we do it in a COVID environment? So this is what Command is all about. It's basically opening up that world of possibly interesting connections, but filtering out the not interested, you know, the, way, the time wasters. If you're in a room here in a beautiful room with 70 people and you're loaded up with a bottle of Coke and 70 business cards, 50% of that is wasted time because you got to go through seven minutes of chat before you realize, not really. So then you got to go through the art of disconnecting from that little circle and move on to the next one. Command saves you all that stuff. The engine does the work, connects you to people, only people who you want to be doing opportunity work with, and you take it from there. I've set up, I've set up an account already, John, for Darwin Hawkins, my, my recruitment company. And I have to say, yeah, it looks looks really well, and it took me five minutes. All very intuitive. Um, so I'm that's great to hear. Similar so brand colors to mine as well. So. We call you one of our command commandos. Okay, keep up the good fight. <laughs> command commando might be the name of this podcast. We we like to take some sort of tidbit from the uh, from the podcast. Do that. You, uh, you mentioned uh, UCD Nova. I don't really understand exactly what that is. Is that something that's uh like that the university uses to spin out companies or what's the, what is the, sure well, before they get spun out, they get incubated. So it's an incubator Okay. Uh, and UCD isn't the only university to have an incubator for, for startups, uh, but it's a very good one. And uh, what it looks like in practice is there would be at any time, 40 to 50, very early stage um, companies, not just tech businesses, you've got life science companies, you got uh, professional service innovators, you got lots and lots of folks and uh, we came across uh, Recommender X um, at GCD a couple of years ago, uh, and they really impressed us. And I know nothing about technology, thank God. So uh, I gave that work to our buddies at Recommender X, and they worked with us. So we do networks and they do technology. And we together we built uh, Command, uh, as in Recommend, yeah. and uh, it's out there in market now. Uh, the, the Nova faculty spins out those companies, and uh, Recommender X is now so successful that it's flying free and has given its seat at UCD Nova to another startup so that they can follow that path as well. Totally. It's so interesting how we, if you 
uh, working with those those people in university like you mentioned you said it's technology is not something that's been in your background but if you can uh, take your your skills and apply it to a technology you don't have to be excluded from that market that's you know obviously the huge growth opportunities joe that's i find that very uh, interesting and me and mark talk yeah. about I, it, there's no doubt about it look all joking aside i mean um it, you know it's not that long in ireland since being an entrepreneur let alone a tech entrepreneur wasn't exactly a badge of honor i mean i, I can tell you over my too long to remember career there was a time when you know a, an entrepreneur was somebody who couldn't get a job uh, when an SME was somebody who couldn't make any money, um, when there was no policy from government around, it was all about FDI, foreign direct investment. That's a good thing. That served as well. Yeah. Um, I think as a community, we can be really proud that we now have a huge layer and, and, and cohort, if you like, of entrepreneurs, guys like yourselves. And I count myself in it now and that you know, we got a chance to get out there and do something new and uh, meet a need that people would value and appreciate and come back and do it again with us. And uh, it's liberating and it's a fantastic um, mode of power in the economy and in the community now. So it's, it's great to be part of that scene. Absolutely. And it's, it is interesting. I think that it's, I guess, maybe the internet, uh, people spending a lot of time uh, looking at in an echo chamber of things that they enjoy. So they see a lot of other entrepreneurs, they listen to podcasts about it, and then they have the confidence to go do it. Um, because we, we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs on the SharkBot. It's not all that we do. We do like we do lifestyle design as well. So sometimes we'll have artists on and stuff, which is great. Like, it's really important. That's why we built our cast business, our culture, arts, sports, and tourism. I think it's really important to have art in our world. Yeah, absolutely. And we really enjoy those ones as well. Um, but we do talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and we, Mark, often uh, talk about their, like, after we talk to them, we talk about how unreasonable uh, they were to get where they have to, or where they are now. So they would be, uh, they'd walk into a, an empty cafe that was for rent and say, I think I'll start a cafe here. I've always wanted to run a cafe when they know nothing about cafes and it takes them six years to get it right. And then it's people just think that that's it was a foregone conclusion and that was going to go well but if you went back to the beginning you're thinking this a rational rational is the wrong word but maybe a reasonable person would say well i don't have the skills for this or it's going to be you know i I might uh, risk too much here you know well when i retired after 40 years in banking uh, having uh, messed up fessed up and fixed up uh, i decided i want to run my own business because i was i'd spent a lifetime helping other guys to run all the people to run their enterprises and i loved every second of it so I was really excited about the opportunity to run my own. I'm glad to say six years later, I have figured out every possible way not to run an SME, not to run a startup. I, there couldn't possibly be any more mistakes I could make at this stage because I've made so many. There are none left. Let's see. I mean, look, that's what being your own boss, that's what being you know an innovator is all about. It is phenomenally exciting. It is you know, it is nerve wracking. It will, it, you know, you can have some pretty dark times not to be, be crass about it. Uh, money can be really, really tight. And you worry when money is tight. You worry about your team. You worry about your family. You worry about, you know, have I made a ferocious mistake? But that's all the more empowering in many ways because you, you just get back up on the bike again and you keep going until you get it right. And please God, we're doing some really right, reasonably right things now. Absolutely. And you mentioned the, the 40 years that you spent uh, in Ulster Bank. Um, a life that, sentence, a life, yeah. <laughs> forty years. So, what's the like when you're when you're working there? Was it more in the sales end of things? Was it in the where, where was the where did you spend most of the time? Well, I I say I now live in life after debt because right. I used to be in the money business, um, okay. but but I'm still doing the same things I was doing before I left 
life uh, with debt uh, in every sense. Uh, I, I had the privilege of working with a fantastic community of people in Ulster Bank and an even fantasticer community of its customers all over the country and beyond, where you know I basically got to talk with people all day about running their businesses, about what, what excites them, what drives them, what scares them, what works well, about mistakes and about great adventures. And some of those businesses went on to become amazingly successful. Lots and lots of them, actually, the great majority of them, amazingly successful businesses that gave jobs to people in, in townlands that I couldn't pronounce. And that's among the most important things you can do with your time on earth. Um, and so I was... I did everything. I did. I did cash and checks, not far from here in Baggett Street and Coolock in in the seventies. I did, um, you know, opening new accounts for people. Blah blah blah. But uh, within a couple of years, I, I had found my way into actually talking to actual entrepreneurs about how they were growing their businesses and supporting them with that. I, I ran Ulster Bank's SME business for many years. I developed the international business. I developed uh, new new lines of business for Ulster Bank to get large numbers of customers to come towards a bank that was originally really very small and we grew its market share in the enterprise space very significantly in the space of a few years. Not by flogging money, but by actually getting to know their business and, and developing the kind of service relationship that any of us would like to have with our bank, uh, where it's you know it's a it's it's a trusted friend, it's somebody who knows more than I know, so I'll consult them if I'm making a decision. Um, I won't necessarily follow everything to the letter, but I will listen to. I mean, business people want to hear stuff. They want insight. They want to know what's the smart guys doing that I could follow that and all that kind of stuff. So I had an absolute pleasure and a privilege working that that beat for about 40 years and then as i said you know when i came out i decided to do the whole thing in life after debt uh, without all the hassle of trying to get money back and just keep on incentivizing and motiv mo motivating people to grow their businesses because that's one of the most important things you can be doing in life so interesting and if you so with all the experience that you had in the banking world in the finance world like say if you were uh, a, t a 25 year old or something like that and you had you know, some money to invest or something like that. Where would you be putting your your money from a finance point of view? Investments, um, yeah. If you know, it, knowing what you know now. So it's a it's a really tricky question, Luke. To be honest with you, and it's it's right on point right now because there's a couple of extra factors that didn't exist even a couple of years ago, and one of those is negative interest rates. I mean, um, in my era, I mean, I remember ringing a guy one time to roll over a loan in the '90s. People think crises are a relatively new thing. In 1992, and his overnight interest rate was 132 percent per annum. So, you know, we've been through some all sorts of weird times and yeah. it's pretty weird now when we've got the exact opposite and people are being charged to leave money in their bank or in, in other instruments. Mm -hmm. uh, so the world is filled with negative interest rates. Um, that's not a bad thing, but it's not a great thing because it means that how do you save for your own pension in the future and stuff like that. And I, I got a team of 15 people, most of them pretty young people who, you know, I, I don't have the resources to fund their future pension. Yeah. Uh, and in, in the gig economy today for lots of people, no one employer is going to be the answer to that. So we really do need to bring about a situation where people have independent control over the resources that they can hopefully put aside for, a, for an income when they can no longer work. And of course, people are living longer and the retirement age for the state pension is, is, is rising. I've been appointed by the government to the new government pensions commission, where we have a, a very clear mission in law and in the constitution by next June to have delivered a way for the, pen, the state and our citizens to be able to have a pension scheme that they can look forward to, a pension environment they can look forward to. Um, I can tell you it's not easy. What I do think is that the first thing is, is education. 
Um, I got young people working for me who would value a lot more knowledge in this space. Um, but that's not going to be done the way it used to be done before with a lot of, you know, dusty old files. We need to make pension provision as easily available as an app on your phone mm. uh, with the right safety and security measures. We need to make it portable right across the multiple jobs that people will have in their lives or self-employment. We need to make it flexible so that if, got, if they've got a crisis, that they don't have to wait until they're, you know, that it's too late. Uh, but equally that, you know, we manage uh, prudently around the amount of that that can be accessed. And we need to make it affordable for the state to play its part in all of that and uh, if there was an easy answer i probably wouldn't yeah. be on the pensions commission so yeah. let's see what work we can do between now and next june it's, re- it's really interesting as well that you you mentioned that you're part of that kind of uh, ongoing process because um uh, like I'd, I'd i'd say that i'd be somebody who would be interested in finance interested in uh you know making money on the side on different doing different things like you said the gig economy and stuff like that but even uh for me um i've been paying into a pension uh, with my employer and it was a very uh, I'm lucky to have an employer that has a, quite a generous uh, you know uh, matching scheme uh, for that which is great um, but I didn't even have access to see how much is in it I had to like go meet somebody to get some code I had no idea I, I so I actually took the time in the last couple of weeks to kind of sort that out start doing some projections um, what, what I what the, like when you're I just never really thought of too much. Maybe, like I said this to Mark, so maybe because I've got a little baby on the way and I've never really thought more than a few years ahead. <laughs> now, something has happened to my brain where I'm thinking like almost like a hundred year plan. You know, this is the this this is the kind of legacy thing that you want to be thinking about. So sure and um, you're right. It's, it's completely I think changed people, for me. People in their 20s think they're going to live forever, Luke, anyway. So now you're in your 30s, you're, you're thinking a bit more sensibly. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's not too late. In fact, it's never too late to do the right thing on this. Um, it's never too early to start. But I mean, I, I'm not expecting 20 year old people to suddenly kind of feel vulnerable. Um, I do think 30 uh, something year old fathers probably uh, probably should make a bit of space in their lives to think about this. Uh, because the earlier you do that, the easier it is and you maintain a habit and you can, you know, you can be flexible and when you have a bit more, you can put more aside and things like that. But now is the right time. And uh, certainly I would encourage anybody at that point in life to say, listen, um, nobody else is going to do this for me. Uh, this is for me and my loved ones and for my loved ones around me and my next of kin and people like that. So let's start doing this and get into the habit of it when it, you know, it's a relatively modest piece of your total outgoings until, rather than find too late that you've got to put so much aside you can't live today. Mm, I think, yeah, I think it's lack of education on it for sure. Even I'm a qualified accountant and I still get confused with pensions. <laughs> yeah. I think I've even done a pension exams a few years ago. So if I'm and myself and Luke are, are kind of struggling with it and not having yeah. the the inspiration to go and look. So, and- yeah, we, see, I think as a as a bunch of folks, we probably made it too complicated. There's a lot of law around it, and there's a lot of tax stuff, and there's a lot of uh, fractions and equations and the boring stuff. But the reality is, it's not that complicated. Take what you live on today. Um, Actually, the one thing about negative interest rates is that you can kind of discount inflation for the minute because we used to have to worry about that. Now that you know, you can, there's a second pass you can come back to about that if, if inflation came back. But basically, to say if you've got another you know 20 years of work in you, uh, making the kind of money you're making today, um, then you know you've got another 20 years of not work after you at some point and say, okay, what does that mean for the amount of money you need to have ready? for the day when you haven't got that money and spread that over the remaining years. Uh, so in some ways, forget about interest, forget about the stock market, forget about tax and just say, you know, how many years could you live on whatever you can afford to save now? 
And normally that's a pretty shocking answer. So it means you kind of need to save a bit more or save for longer or both. And that's what we're talking about here. Absolutely. And I think the confrontation of that number is something that that everyone needs to do because when you actually do the math, you're like, okay, what I'm putting away now, um, it's likely that that's going to be, you know, 400 euro a month uh when i'm when i'm you know 65 or whatever so maybe i need to make some uh, uh decisions the there you know so I, think no, it's, it's I, I wouldn't want to be too downhearted about it it can be done and um one of the reasons a lot of people choose to be self-employed is because they can have control over you know the amount of income if you're if you're working as a, on a wage for somebody else um or if you're you know in, in the public service and things like that sometimes people are not able to vary their income um, so, so that's the deal, and you, and you've got to make a plan in the context of that. Uh, one of the reasons people are drawn to running their own business is because, uh, as they see it, and it's usually right, the harder they work, the more they can make, and that gives them a bit more to put aside for that pretty tough economics lesson that comes later in life. Absolutely, something to take away as well. Um, so, John, thanks very much for coming along today. We've got a bit of the, the lightning, the lightning round here. Uh, time really flies here uh, on the Shark Pod, as you, you probably know. Um, but Mark Baker, we've got a few a few uh, questions here for John. Okay, I'll start off nice and simple, John. What apps do you use the most on your phone? Oh, I'm an email junkie. But actually, one of the great learnings in COVID has has been about you know better tools than that because uh, it's just so so last year in every sense actually in COVID. So uh, we're gorging in my team now on the latest apps around uh, workflow management where everybody's working from home or as we say, living at work. Uh, so we're, 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 we're junkies for Asana, uh, Microsoft Teams, anything that makes it just easier and simpler and, and more fun uh, and less discomfort, et cetera, et cetera, to be, to be on that. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a petrol head. So I have about 17 different motor industry apps uh, I'm a motor industry junkie and I'm a motor uh, vehicle junkie. So I, you know, the only thing that switches me off is when I'm reading something about the motor industry. Um, what else have I got? I got lots of other news stuff because I am a bit of a news junkie, but I don't let that too much into my life because most of the news content is designed to make you feel bad about life, whereas I, I much prefer to feel better. Um, and I, I spend a lot of time, I, some of my life is, is dedicated to arts and culture. So I do a lot of work. I'm on a number of boards, great people like Fish Amble, the new play company. I'm on the board there and I've just stepped down from the board of Music Network, which does fantastic work to expose kids to live music and families around the country. And I'm on the board of the Irish Film Institute. So I'm really enjoying using their online applications, not least in, in COVID. So yeah, I'm on page five of a you know, 20 apps per page thingy. Uh, that keeps me going. Yeah, nice. <laughs> That's plenty. Um, okay. What's the best business idea you've never acted upon? Oh, well, but m most of my ideas uh, are about, about get rich quick ideas, but most of them have turned out to be get broke slowly ideas. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm probably the last guy to ask about ideas that work. Um, they, Anything that has to do with a sale is a good thing because I use the slightly heathen credo that nothing happens in life without a sale. You could be brilliant at what you know and what you do, but if you can't turn that into buying sliced pans, you know, convert what you love doing into an exchange of currency that somebody gives you so that you can live as well as be, be bright and brainy and having fun with your brain. So nothing happens in life without a sale and nothing happens to make sales happen without sellers meeting buyers. So I'm 
I'm all about connecting sellers and buyers. I don't mind which side, as long as we, we get the meeting up, because that's how sales happen, and that's how your brain gets turned into food, and that's how somebody gets a job to help convert the process, and that's how people don't kill each other on the street, because we have peace and prosperity. Very good. Yeah, you see, you see lots of good products, and but getting to market just seems to be tough for, for a lot of companies, that piece. Um, okay, what time do you get up at in the morning, and what time do you go to sleep? Uh, um, um, well, the clock goes off at six, but I, I, I might be awake from about five, um, catching up on stuff, and I generally hit the sack around about midnight. Okay. How much money is enough money? Well, you don't need any money, really. I mean, you, you could, I have a very good friend who is a clergy person. Um, they don't have any money. They're taking a vow of poverty and they're among the happiest people I know. So you don't need money. Um, it's only if you want to get something that only money can buy that you need money. You don't even need an awful lot of stuff that you can buy. You, know, you do need the slice pan from time to time. But outside of that, I think people can live on very little. And I think a growing amount of people are, are, are increasingly interested in not accumulating wealth for wealth's sake. Because, hint, you can't take it with you. Yeah. So, you know, how much is enough to be secure and for your loved ones, you know, your new baby coming along to be healthy and to get an education. Education is a big, big deal. So we're, you know, if we're not talking about pensions, we're not talking about education nearly enough as well, because education is the future by definition, but it also helps us to make a better future by innovation. We talked about UCD and things like that. So, you know, funding those things does need a reasonable allocation of the income that you accumulate. But outside of that, you don't need it. Money is only useful for what it can make happen. And the only things that you want to be making happen are security and well-being, peace and prosperity at a modest level, um, and enough to take a little bit of risk in life because actually entrepreneurs don't change the world for the better without taking a bit of risk. And you can't take risk without being willing to lose a couple of bob so that you can get it back on the idea that works. So I would always leave a bit of space for that too. Very good. Yeah. Um, is it who you know or is it what you know? It's both. Um, there's no point in knowing loads of stuff if you can't impart your braininess to somebody else. Uh, they may tell you that, that that's not very brainy at all, but it is it is useful to have a network. Um, and if you have a network, that enables you to achieve more than you can travel on, on your own. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great thing. Um, uh, and I've, I've nothing against people who are shy and retiring, but I encourage them to <clears throat> somehow overcome that enough to know that it's great on the other side when you can open a conversation with people. Because in my experience, um, when you put two people together, uh, an extra thing happens out of that, uh, that that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't met up. So, yeah, I mean, networks are about, um, they're fun, they're really sociable, they help you de-stress because if you've got a problem, there's always somebody who has a bigger version of it. So share it with somebody else so that you kind of, on average, come out a little bit better off. Uh, and usually you'll pick up an interesting idea that you hadn't thought of before or the basis for an idea that will occur to you because you met that person last year or last month. Uh, so, yeah, we're all about knowing people to get stuff done. So uh, combining your brain with somebody else usually amounts to more than the sum of the parts. Absolutely. Very good. And, hey, Mark Baker. Okay. I had a thought there. Sorry, Luke. I know it's a rare thing, but I had a thought there when, uh, when John was speaking about how much money is enough money. I was I was watching a, a place in the sun. I don't know if you've ever, you guys ever mm -hmm. seen that. It's a Channel Four thing. One of my favorites uh, of a Sunday afternoon. You know, um, 
And I was thinking to myself, because how much money is enough money? There were these guys, they were, it was the south of Spain, and they had about a quarter of a million pounds, which is a lot of money, like. Um, and they were looking for an apartment, a two-bed apartment. I'm like, oh, this, you know, they're showing them around that type of thing. Uh, and I just thought to myself, because of the sharing economy and Airbnb, I can go live in one of these places for a month for a thousand euro. And mm. I went on a sun holiday for three weeks before, and it was a nightmare. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Three weeks is way too long to be in a place <laughs> like that. Do you know what I mean? So uh, a lifetime yeah. uh, of that uh, isn't appealing to me. So I think the way things are going now with that type of opening up of uh, being able to have access to things that you wouldn't be able to have access before. Like we stayed in yeah. uh, Cannes in this beautiful apartment there. It was kind of a special occasion. Uh, we stayed there for four nights, and it was a million, a million dollar house or kind of a... a uh, townhouse type thing um and we were able to get the get the uh, a glimpse of what that would be like and then that was enough for us we just go home happy so you don't have to save up a million and go buy a house and, and absolutely really absolutely and, and i mean it's it's kind of a version of the gig economy it's like gig purchasing you don't have to own it you just want to use it and you know apps and things like that to your point earlier on mark have opened the gateway to that operationally i mean the one thing i would say is um like you have a right to be wrong, so you need to find out stuff to to find out whether what you thought you want is really what you want. And you know, try or buy is a kind of an interesting approach. One thing I would say about being motivated by money is it's actually no harm to be motivated by anything as long as it as long as you're motivated. I mean, the the sadder version of life would be not to be much motivated. Um, there's a lot of challenge to people's well-being and mental health right now under COVID. So I think it's really important that we keep people positively motivated because it's very hard to make things happen unless you feel strong in yourself. You can feel afraid and feel strong at the same time. But if you don't have enough inner strength in, in, you know, in your head, you'll find it hard to kind of take on challenges. And a part of the incentive to be strong is the incentive, the material incentive that says, well, if I work harder or if I'm more successful or if I can try and avoid making mistakes or learn lots of things from my mistakes, then I can deliver a better life, not just for me, for, but for people around me. So if that's a, if that's a money-based uh, motivation, then that's a good money-based motivation as far as I'm concerned that as well hey mark okay about one more question if you're looking in there and you you got something burning on the page there what would you what would you ask john okay last one if you could advise somebody to learn one skill what would it be um if i could buy somebody to learn Adv- adv- advise somebody advise somebody to learn one skill well humility is always a skill to be learned um and, and we should be humble about our humility uh but you know, I, I take that as a little bit crass. I mean, uh, I, I think the skill of not being afraid is is uh, a really important skill. Like your body, our bodies need us to be afraid when we're under physical threat, but we're often afraid without having any real threat. So I think confidence, uh, self-belief, uh, self-strength, self-reinforcement when you're down to get back up again, um, strength to protect those you love around you, your family. Um, people need us to be strong. People, people need people to be strong. We need to be stronger than the bad guys. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff around. So, yeah, I, I think self-belief and an inner strength. These are these are the sustaining forces that can help us to deliver a better world for everybody. Very Absolutely. good. And on that on that note, we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. We do have one more question, John. Uh, would you prefer a T-shirt that looks something like this? Or would you like a uh, a mug, trackpad mug, mug rather? What would you prefer? Oh, I'm a mug guy, as you can probably 
get a sense of. Uh, okay. A lot of people think think I've been a mug for a very long time. Uh, no, I okay. uh, nothing against uh, wildlife. In fact, I'm totally for wildlife. So I'll let you take care of the fish. Send me the mug. Perfect. John, thanks very much for joining us on the Shark Pod. Thanks Great to work with you guys. Bye. Take care. Thanks, John. Bye.